Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today. We're continuing our series on common Christian problems. And so far in this series, I believe I have introduced every episode with the assertion, all Christians have problems. And I have a little bit of an edge on this in that in my past, I was an evangelical pastor, and I became aware as a pastor that all Christians, even those Christians you never think would have a problem, even some who think to be sailing 10,000 feet above their problems, uh, all Christians have problems. That's why we're having this series. And today, I want to deal with a very common Christian problem, and that is dealing with unwanted thoughts and behaviors. All Christians struggle with their thought life, and men in particular have a constant struggle with lust and unwanted sexual thoughts. Now, it is true that we don't talk much about it, and in a certain sense, it creates its own problems by never, and I'm obviously you need to be careful in how you express that, but never talking about it. It's very easy for a person, particularly men, to think something is really wrong with me because I have this problem. Nobody else seems to have the problem. So therefore, I've got something wrong with me. I've told this story before, but it's one of those things that really uh, stuck with me. I was in college. It was the second time I went to college. First time I didn't do too well. Second time I did a lot better. And this was a Christian college. And I had a friend who was really troubled uh, with lustful thoughts, uh, in large part stemming from the way a lot of the co-eds on campus were dressing, and to his mind, a lot of suggestive clothing is causing him problems. And he went to a very godly professor on our campus. And this man was the real deal, a very gracious and godly man. And he just opened his heart to him and says, well, something's wrong with me. I'm having these problems with lust stemming from the way a lot of the girls are dressing on campus. And this godly professor, and he truly was a godly professor, simply said back, it is a real problem for us, isn't it? And my friend was absolutely floored because he was thinking, I think he wanted to be a pastor. And how can you be a pastor if you have problems? Let me tell you something. Also, as an evangelical pastor, I was on a committee for my presbytery called the Minister and His Work Committee. Guess what? Pastors have problems. All Christians have problems. And sometimes when you think that you're the only one with the problems, then you're, you're the black sheep. Uh, Jesus doesn't love you. And actually, if you lose sight of, of the fact that Jesus does love you, then you do have a very, very big problem. But that's actually next episode. So I want to tell you about research that's been done from an organization called the Center for Biblical Engagement. And they did a lot of research. It was a medical researcher, retired, 
and used his skills in researching. And he researched, started with a group of 40,000 people and then expanded it to 100,000 people, which means this was one of the largest in-depth interviews through research that, to my knowledge, has ever been done. And what they found, they asked this question, how often are Christian men tempted to do something wrong? And the answer was 342 days a year, or 94% of the days in each calendar year. Now, you might be astonished by that, and you might think, I thought I was the only one wrestling with problems with these things, and our world isn't making it any easier. You can click on what you might think is a harmless news site, and on both sides of your article, you're having women with 95% of their clothes off. I mean, it's not an easy thing. And so 94% of the days in the year and the unwanted thoughts and temptations for Christian men are 10 times higher than any other temptation they face. Now, here's where you can get really tripped up. If you're thinking something is unusually wrong with me as a Christian, you can become vulnerable to what I call the Jesus plus strategies. In other words, you're seen to be having a hard time with this, and you've come to believe in Jesus, or you were raised in a Christian home, and you've been faithful to Jesus, but you're having this ongoing problem, and there are loads of books, of programs, of whatever, CDs or downloads, podcasts, people offering to you what I have termed Jesus plus strategies. I, I'm just thinking in my mind, Jesus with a little plus sign after him. And that's the path to victorious Christian living. And here's how the Jesus plus strategies work. And if you're discerning, you'll see this in any number of places in both Catholic and Protestant circles, okay? Step one, Salvation is presented as coming to us by the grace of God. Most Christians get this. Many religions of the world, it's like climbing a ladder trying to get to heaven. And in Christianity, there's the ladder, like Jacob's ladder, foreshadowing Christ's incarnation. But God comes down to us because we don't have the ability to go up to him. So salvation is by grace. It's a gift. It's due to God's love for us. Most Christians get that, but here comes the problem. It's step two, okay? Step one, it's by the grace of God. We get this, we're, we're now rolling, but step two, what do we do after that? And that's where hordes of programs, of books, of strategies, of even broadcast come along and offered a Jesus plus strategy, which means somehow it empowers you to become victorious. Jesus plus something else you do. And this might sound so simple. I've gone over these verses before, but just realize that as a Protestant youth leader and pastor, 
the three verses I'm going to share with you were all I needed to lead somebody out of the Catholic Church. In fact, there's only two of the three verses, okay? And it's this. Usually it's somebody grinding away at the Jesus plus strategies. Jesus plus, I got to do something else. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. It goes like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And it's interesting. I just looked in the original Greek here. When it says it's not your own doing, it's not of you. It's of God. And it's a gift. It's not because he saw you were so great and good and fast or rich or smart or anything. It's a gift. He saw that you needed it and gave you his gift. That's step one. And again, we should get this. But then verse 9 says this, not because of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, the reason we have a relationship with God is not because of some human willpower, some human decision, some human do's or don'ts. It's lest any man should boast or be pride to come out. I earned it. No, it's a gift. And a gift you don't earn, it's simply received by faith. Now, here comes the big rub. Okay, we just covered step one. We're saved by grace. It's not of ourselves. But step two is in verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there's several things in here. First of all, I'd just like to share with you a little bit of good news. When it says we are his workmanship, in the original language, that's like saying we are his poema. It's related to a poem. In other words, there's a rhyming, balanced, thoughtful, well-crafted plan for each of our lives. And it's not kind of like an ongoing Let's see, what should I do now with Betty or what should I do with John? No, it says God prepared this beforehand. Okay, this this is a plan. God prepared a path for us and how even the disconnected parts of our life will somehow come together and make a whole lot of sense. It will rhyme, okay? But it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose for good works. Now, this work can get confusing because in the verse before, it says, not because of works. Okay, not because of works, but the next verse is for good works. Now, there's a difference between good works, and I'm going to explain what that is in a second, and those type of do-it-yourself works that you're trying to get yourself to heaven by. The works that don't save are human-powered, human willpower, human to-do list or not to-do list or whatever. But it says good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, there's a difference in step two, and this is a huge difference. There's a difference 
between trying to do good works basically on your own. In other words, Jesus gets you out of the starting gate, step one, but step two, you come in and try to do this. And that's not what good works are. It says that we should walk in them. And in my mind, and just hope your 16-year-old children are not listening to this, but when I got my driver's license, I had an old black VW Beetle that had no power whatsoever. And when I had to go on the interstate, this thing could barely keep up with traffic. And so what I did is found a fast-moving semi and got right behind him and slipstreamed. In other words, I didn't try to use the power in my little black bug to go down the interstate because it simply didn't have it. I followed in the wake of something much bigger, much more powerful, much more efficient that just basically pulled me along in his slipstream. Well, now that was dangerous. I shouldn't have done it, and I realized that. Plus, you have nothing in the front end of a VW bug. I was crazy, yes. But any the point being, Jesus is the one before us. It is his power that pulls us forward. So it's not this self-powered striving to do good works. It says that we simply walk in them. There's a certain part of, like, when Jesus says it's an easy yoke. It's not a back-breaking, defeatist, uh, try-harder approach, or do 10 things, or extend your uh, devotion life. Do this, just add, 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 add. And don't get me wrong, devotional lives are very good if it's motivated by the love of God. It's empowered by the grace of God. But if it's simply you doing it, you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now, again, as Catholics, we're balanced. We're, we're not simply saying we depend upon the grace of God. We don't do any works. That's not true. Okay, We do do good works, but this is how we do them. And this is an autobiographical description of the nuclear engine that was in a single man who changed the face of Western civilization almost single-handedly. And I'm talking about St. Paul and his apostolic missionary journeys around the Roman Empire. I mean, you've seen the ads for the Energizer Bunny. Well, St. Paul was the nuclear energized apostle. And here's what goes on in the inside of his life. And this one is, as I say, it, it requires a couple of different perspectives to look at how we live out this step two of the Christian life. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but then he adds, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, not I. It's not the ego. It's not the willpower. It's not I do this and I do that, or I'm going to add this, I'm going to delete that. No, it's the grace of God within me. Now, I'm going to make an observation, or I'm going to state an observation that I have made to a fairly firm conclusion, and it's this. A majority of Catholics have, a, have an acute disconnect 
between steps one and two of salvation. That second half, somehow they think, is up to them. And I'm saying a majority, youth and adults. And this is nothing new. St. Paul was the evangelist, the apostle who came to town and brought the Galatians to their Catholic faith. And yet he could write in his epistle to the Galatians, in verse 6, he says, this is the first chapter, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. In the middle of the epistle, chapter 3, he starts, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You're hoodwinked. Are you so foolish having begun with the Spirit? Are you now ending with the flesh? In other words, step one, they began with grace. They were pagans, and God bestowed his love on them. They had a 180 turn of their life. They had a conversion experience. But step two, when it came to living it out, some folks came to town with a Jesus plus strategy. Back then, it was Jesus plus. You have to keep all the Old Testament laws on your steam, basically, they were saying. And now, this is what happens when you do this. And I'm getting to my point of dealing with unwanted thoughts and behaviors. St. Paul again, by the way, these Galatians so quickly turning, uh, scripture scholars are divided on this. It could have been, you know, five or six years after St. Paul evangelized them. But this is the Apostle Paul, and yet they didn't get it and they left. But some scripture scholars said this could have been as soon as one year after having them embraced the fullness of the Catholic faith, they departed by missteps in that step two, how you live it out. It continues by grace in step two. And if you forget that, then you have a gigantic Christian problem that is not solvable until you recover grace. Now, back to St. Paul again, and now we're in Colossians chapter 2. He said, why do you still live? He's talking to Christians like you still belong to the world. Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Do this, don't do that. Increase your to-do list. Make sure you make everything taboo. And he says, these things, again, coming up with Jesus plus strategies, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body, but they are of no value in checking the indulgence of the flesh. The Ignatius Catholic Study Bible summarizes this quite well. It says, disciplines are not wrong in themselves, of course not. But without grace, asceticism cannot restrain the selfish urges of our fallen nature. This is possible only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Navarre Bible says, a false piety, and that's a Jesus plus piety, enslaves its practitioners. 
Now, let me take you to what I consider some of the most astonishingly important verse in the New Testament, actually two verses, John chapter 15. We're now in the upper room, and Jesus is instituting the Blessed Eucharist for the first time. Personally, I believe we're now right about the chalice, and he says in John 15, 4, abide in me as I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, this is Jesus speaking as he's instituting the Eucharist, and he's basically saying, you can't do it. You're not going to provide the fruit in your lives unless you abide in me. Abiding comes from a, a very quiet and deep and profound trust that Jesus will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And he goes on and says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when it comes to doing the good works, and I know this as a former Protestant, boy, if you want to criticize something in the Catholic Church, you criticize works, and you basically say Catholicism is self-salvation and everything else, and if you want to prove it, you lift a few sentences out of context from the Council of Trent. That's where they really hammer down. Well, this is straight from the Council of Trent, the sixth session, which deals with justification, chapter 16. Quote, For since Christ Jesus himself as the head into the members and the vine into the branches, footnoting John 15. Do you get, just like branches produce that fruit going through its branches, it doesn't pop out by itself. And it says, continually Christ infuses strength into those justified, which strength always precedes, accompanies, and follows their good works, without which they could not in any manner be pleasing and meritorious before God. In other words, all plan Bs that are Jesus plus are a huge, monumental deception and waste of time. It's an other gospel, and they're being promoted in both Catholic and Protestant circles under various exalted, pious claims that this will get you where you want to go. No, it's not Jesus plus. The formula is Jesus. Jesus. And as Catholics, we should never fall for Jesus plus, because in the Blessed Eucharist, we're centered not on something, someone. Jesus is giving us his grace, his life, his power to live step two. That's why Trent, when it talks about good works, it talks about John 15. And John 15, if you go to the original context, it's the institution of the Blessed Eucharist. Now, this is going to be kind of shocking, and I think I'm perhaps one of the few, if not the only Catholics, that have 
pointed this out. A lot of people missed it. But the Barna Research Group found out in a nationwide survey that Catholics are twice as likely as the general population to view internet pornography. Twice as likely as the general population of the United States. Now hear this. One of the Jesus plus strategies, that second step, is a legalism. And Romans 7 verse 5 says, while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In other words, the law, the Jesus plus, that's what's going on in Galatia, or the to-do list in the church of Colossae, (laughs) weren't helping. It was actually making things worse. And so how do you explain that Catholics, whether or not they're practicing or not, just in a nationwide survey, why are they worse than the general population? I put this in a newsletter because I, at the time I was flabbergasted. And I have a friend who's an Orthodox Christian. He's a very gracious guy. He's not a Catholic basher by any means. He carved an icon that I'm looking at right now in my radio studio. He encouraged me to move where he's living. He says there's a great Catholic parish there. I mean, he's, 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 he's not a Catholic basher. But this is what he wrote me. I think of St. Paul in Romans when he insisted that the law— rather than setting us free, leads to the experiential knowledge of the power that sin has over us. It seems that whatever Catholic men are getting in church, it is the law and not the gospel of grace. For it seems self-evident that if Christian men are worse off than the population at large, that which is impacting them at church is the proclamation of law and not gospel. Then, what is actually being presented to them is law, and it's having the predictable effect of eliciting the power of sin in our members. Now, you might say, oh, well, just from an Orthodox. No, this is an honest reply from an observer of what he perceives as something obvious in our midst. Could it be that we have a big disconnect between steps one, our coming to faith in Christ, and step two, living that out. Perhaps are we inadvertently steering off from the path of grace, from the path in John 15 that apart from me, you can do nothing? Are we reverting to some form of self-effort or rule-keeping? And in the next episode, I'm going to be sharing with you how you and your children can get over that hurdle. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 287 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.